This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. Coming out as gay when you're a Zoomer. The mayor of Ottawa did that just last weekend. We'll talk about why some members of the LGBTQ community wait so long. And do you know what a silent stroke is and that you're more likely to have one after surgery? We'll share the details of an important new study. But first... Here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A new study finds many type 1 and type 2 diabetics with well-controlled blood sugars are still being over-treated with medication. As a result, many end up in the ER and hospital with hypoglycemia or dangerously low blood sugars, which can lead to heart disease, disability and death. The study finds 2.3 million American patients are at risk. And while prior studies had shown that older diabetic patients were being over-treated, this one found that a larger diabetic patient population might be affected. The now popular phrase, fake news, may have a real impact on how we vote. A new study out of Ireland finds voters may form false memories after seeing fake news stories. The researchers found this to be more true if the stories align with their beliefs. While it was done the week before Ireland legalized abortion, it suggests fake news can have similar effects in other contexts, including our fall election and next year's U.S. presidential election. This study is unique because it examined misinformation and false memories with a real-world issue, the referendum on abortion. Hi, I'm Larry King. I've spent the majority of my life sitting down, not just sitting down doing nothing, sitting down talking to the most important people of our time, and I had a fabulous time doing it. Talk about gray divorce. Veteran TV talk show host Larry King is saying, I don't at the age of 85, and it's far from his first time. King has filed for divorce from his seventh wife after 22 years. The two married in 1997 as King was preparing to undergo heart surgery. The couple filed for divorce in 2010, but later reconciled. King has overcome several serious health issues in recent years, including a bout with lung cancer two years ago. He's been married eight times to seven different women and has five children. The legislation that I'm really proud of was the special education legislation. That's former Ontario politician Dr. Betty Stevenson. Less than three weeks after her 95th birthday, she has died. Regarded as a pioneer in both medicine and politics, she notched many firsts in her career first female minister of several portfolios, including education, labor, finance, and first female president of both the Canadian and Ontario Medical Associations. She was invested with both the Order of Canada and the Order of Ontario. For the past few years, she was living at an assisted living centre in Richmond Hill. 
I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. I should have done it, you know, decades ago. I've had people shout out, you know, come out of the closet, Jim. And I sort of pretended I didn't hear and waved to them. And, uh, and I thought, you know, what am I holding back? Probably, you know, I knew when I was maybe 17, 16, something like that. That's Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson after he came out as a gay man just last weekend at the age of 58. There's no question the LGBTQ community is more accepted now than when he was a young man. But there are still many reasons people delay acknowledging their sexuality, spouses, children, or religion, to name a few. The Reverend Anne-Marie Zanzal came out as a lesbian when her marriage ended, and she now counsels others going through the same process. I reached her in Nashville, Tennessee. There are a lot of people that come out later in life. Um, I applaud him for his tremendous courage for doing it. And I just know that it's a really um, hard thing to do. (laughs) People applauded him for his courage and his reaction was, I'm not really being brave. The people who did this 20 and 30 years ago when it was much less accepted, they're the ones who are brave. You know, the thing is, Libby, is that everybody's coming out story is different. And I think there's a fallacy out there that it is easy to come out now, and it really isn't. And so, yes, the people that came out years ago, you know, my partner came out in the 1980s. And yes, it was a different time, but it is still hard to come out. How so? What are the hardest aspects of it? (sighs) That's a very difficult question to answer. So... And it depends, I think, on where you are in life. I think that, so if I'm, I'm going to answer that as someone who was married and who had children. So I was married man for um, 27 years. Um, that was my um, now ex-husband. So I think for me, I lived in a very liberal area of the United States, New England. So I thought that when I came out, you know, nobody would care. And what ended up happening is that the people that were in my circle of friends with my ex-husband and I, they pretty much all became his friends and sort of no longer were my friends anymore. Ironically, I was a minister of a local church at that time. Ironically, it was actually my church where I know most people have a really hard time with their churches. My church was very accepting of me and very, very supportive. So, you know, there's a loss of family. There is a loss of identity because you have often lived as a straight mommy or straight daddy for years and years and years. Oftentimes you lose, sometimes you lose jobs depending on what you do. And it's just a series of losses that people do not expect when they start this journey. How did your children and your ex-husband react to this? Well, my ex-husband knew for a pretty long time. I mean, I was, my coming out was a very long time. It was about 10 years. And, um, so, you know, you sort of start coming out quietly. And for some people, everybody's different. So you start coming out to individuals and quietly and stuff like that. So my ex-husband knew for about 10 years. And at, at some point, we just realized that we couldn't be together anymore. And I needed to go out, explore this side of myself. My children are four individuals, and so they all sort of acted it really according to their personality. So I went from incredibly accepting and happy for me to, you know, a kid that was pretty angry. <laughs> so, you know, and, and, and you also have to remember, Libby, mixed in all of this is that 
for my kids is that I was my their dad and I were getting divorced. And especially for my 20 somethings, that was very hard because, you know, they had known us just as a couple and to see their mom and dad get divorced when they were uh, 20 to 25 was pretty hard for them. Now, the mayor of Ottawa was not married, not Mm -hmm. in any heterosexual relationship. So what would the obstacles be for somebody in a position like that? Well, I think expectations of your constituents, don't you think? There have been a whole bunch of norms put on us as, as in society. There has been, you know, religious norms, cultural norms, uh, laws, all kinds of things that have been put on people. And so it's sort of breaking free of sometimes internalized homophobia, sometimes externalized homophobia, and, and deciding that, I am just not going to live my life half anymore. I am going to acknowledge who I am authentically, and I am going to live in this world authentically as uh, how I was created to be. The mayor of Ottawa, one of the things he said is that he regrets leaving it this long because of the effect it would have had on his personal relationships and, and things like that. Uh, is that a common theme for people who come out late? I think it's a mixed bag. Um, I think that there are some people that do have a lot of regret missing all the things that you miss because I have always said that, um, you know, being gay is really not, I mean, I know people, what we focus on is who people sleep with, but really that's not what it's about. It's about being who we are uh, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And I think for a lot of people that they have regret that they did not seek that emotional connection that they needed with somebody else. So for in my life, for example, my emotional needs just can't be met by a man. And once I had my emotional needs met by a woman, I realized what I had missed all my life. So some people do have regret. Some people don't. I have regret in certain areas. Like, I wish I had come out younger and had experienced, you know, just the whole social scene and stuff like that, because I did not do that. And so I missed all that stuff because I was busy raising children. (laughs) Finally, what advice do you have for people who are coming out at an older age? I think the most important thing is finding community. And I think the second most important thing is letting go of others' expectations of how you should live your life. Thank you so much for this. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Libby. That was the Reverend Anne-Marie Zanzal. She now specializes in counseling people who come out later in life. We're all familiar with campaigns urging Zoomers to be aware of the signs of stroke and what to do if we experience them. But what if there are no symptoms? It turns out these so-called silent strokes are quite common. They are most likely to happen after surgery, and they can lead to major strokes within a year. Dr. P.J. Devereaux of McMaster University led the study that laid out the risks. Most people think of strokes in the sense of a patient all of a sudden having difficulty speaking or losing strength on one side of their body. And... When that happens, when we do a brain scan of those patients, we'll see a stroke on the imaging. There's some patients who, for various reasons, may not demonstrate symptoms, but in fact, when we do a brain MRI, 
we see a lesion in their brain that is consistent with the fact that the patient has had a stroke. So a silent or a covert stroke is when we don't identify symptoms clinically. However, the brain MRI demonstrates that there's a clear stroke on the actual imaging. I think most people have never heard of this. Is this a a recent discovery or they've been around for a long time? Well, they've certainly been around for a long time, but it is more recent in terms of science uncovering this. And also it's, you know, happened with the explosion of people having access to MRIs and having more of them done and then identifying in some patients who did not have a known history of a prior stroke, finding lesions in their brain that were consistent with a prior stroke. Um, So this has been identified in the non-surgical setting. And in the non-surgical setting, the patients who end up having these silent covert strokes are at substantially higher risk of going on to cognitive decline and dementia compared to patients who do not have these silent covert strokes. And that's part of what raised the question for us in the surgical setting, whether or not this may be an issue. What are the risk factors for somebody who has one of these silent strokes? It usually happens after surgery, right? There's been reports, you know, from the 1950s where, you know, sometimes families would say to surgeons that their loved one was different after surgery. And frequently people will be told to get the patient home and, you know, they've had anesthesia, they're probably a bit older and they'll be okay. And sometimes that's true, but sometimes that may not be true. And we'd also previously identified that in the surgical setting, because patients are getting narcotics that can mask a lot of symptoms. The numbers seem high. So one in 14 people age 65 and older undergoing surgery that wasn't heart surgery have these silent strokes. Correct. And we saw that um, we had... 12 centers in nine different countries. And we also, we saw this signal um, in a global context across the centers. We also saw it across all forms of non-cardiac surgery. So non-cardiac, non-cardiac surgeries being, you know, hips, knees, bowels, lungs, all those kind of surgeries. And we saw that patients across all those types of surgeries were having these covert strokes. And then importantly, We also demonstrated not only were they getting covert strokes, but these covert strokes were independently associated with a twofold increase in the likelihood that these patients would go on to cognitive decline one year after their surgery. We also demonstrated a twofold increase in the likelihood that patients would get perioperative delirium, which is an acute confusional state after their surgery if they get a covert stroke compared to if they don't get a covert stroke. And the covert strokes were also associated with a fourfold increase in the likelihood that patients would go on to an overt stroke or a mini stroke in the coming year after um, their brain MRI after surgery. Those numbers are pretty scary. Well, they're important. And, you know, it highlights that we have work to do to overcome this. We should never lose sight of the fact patients are getting surgery for very important reasons. And sometimes surgery can cure cancer. Sometimes it can dramatically improve quality of life for patients. And what we need to now do that we've identified this and identified other issues that exist in the paraper setting is to do research to figure out how we're going to prevent this from happening. Should people then in that age bracket then think twice about elective surgery? Well, people should always rationally 
consider the potential benefits and the content and the potential risks of surgery, and they have to weigh that to make an informed decision of whether or not surgery is appropriate for them. And that's, as I said, you know, most people getting surgery are getting it for very important reasons, but it has to be offset with what are the potential risks. And most importantly, what it means is that those of us doing research need to actually figure out once again how we're going to prevent it, how we're going to better manage it, so it doesn't end up becoming a big issue for patients. What about the risk factors for it? Are some patients more likely than others? Yeah, so we've not been able to identify yet what are the key risk factors for getting these um, silent covert strokes in the surgical setting. Um, We have further analyses to do to try to better understand that, and we'll be undertaking further research to better understand it. But the one thing that does appear clear was with all of our research is that it increases with advancing age. Is there anything that the patients themselves can do to mitigate this? Certainly doing things like ensuring that people stop smoking as soon as they can and definitely smoking as soon as they can prior to their surgery, that they um, you know, have good management of their diabetes, good management of their blood pressure, and also that their lipids are well under control are probably rational things that will help with this patient population and help minimize the risk of this around the surgical setting. That being said, we need a lot more research to better understand how to explicitly target this. And that's, as I said, the next steps that we'll be undertaking in our research program. Dr. P.J. Devereaux, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Dr. P.J. Devereaux of McMaster. His study on silent strokes was published in The Lancet. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, Faz Kazi, and Justin Eacock. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.